Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles. And this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you the latest updates from the front lines, analyse a suspected assassination attempt on the wife of Ukraine's military spy chief, and we discuss a new Ukrainian project, People of Culture Taken Away by the War, with friend of the podcast, Dr. Sasha Dovshik. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's gonna break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 28th of November, One year and 277 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, assistant comment editor Francis Durnley, Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes, and our guest is Dr Sasha Dovchik, a writer, curator and cultural manager now based in Lviv. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, hi David, hi everybody. Welcome, welcome Sasha. Let's start in uh, in the Black Sea after the news that we were talking about yesterday, this horrific storm. Russia's Black Sea fleet has apparently been forced back to base. Uh, They're saying this storm is the worst in 100 years that hit um, that area of southern southern Ukraine, eastern Europe. No Russian ships able to operate in the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov because of the blizzards, giant waves and winds up to 90 miles an hour, according to Ukraine's Navy and Southern Army Command. What Russian media are calling the storm of the century... Uh, has left about 18 people dead, um, over 30 injured, millions without power across Ukraine, occupied Ukraine, Russia and Moldova. Uh, One Russian blogger said that naval minefields were feared to be drifting after the storm broke boom nets, keeping them in place. A few thoughts on that a a bit later. There are some images actually online showing, uh, showing dummy mines that have been washing up that looked to have been part of the training or the excise area west of Sevastopol that are now washing up on the shore. They're basically just big lumps of metal, dummy mines that you can then use your, use your sensors and your um, other bits and pieces, including personnel. And I think Russia's using dolphins as well to go and search for, search for mines, but they've been washed up. Now, high tides, again, very dramatic footage online. High tides, tides have been shown to have washed away trenches, coastal barriers and uh, firing positions in Yev Pateria. That's about 75 k's up the coast. So in Crimea, up the coast from Sevastopol, around the, around the sort of bay, virtually due north of the city. That's where the, the worst of it seems to have been in Crimea. 
Damage to rail lines in occupied Crimea and mainland Russia, or take out the mainland there, sorry, shouldn't have said that, in occupied Crimea and Russia will hamper logistics. It will just slow everything down, not least of which you'll find footage. I think we've got some on our, on our website at the moment about uh, rail lines that have just been absolutely trashed. They will be fixed, but um, completely the, the foundation is totally washed away. Video footage shows Russian engineers battered by the sea as they're working to repair a, a rail line near Sochi, so on the on the Russian coast, uh, almost totally washed away. Sochi is about 200 k's down the coast from Novorossiysk, which is where most of the Black Sea fleet have moved over the last few months. I haven't seen any reports yet of the impact, any impact on Novorossiysk, so keep an eye out for that. Colonel Alexander Stupin, who's the spokesperson for Ukraine's Tavrysk Army Group, he said uh, that the weather has obviously had an impact on the military activities. He said the number of Russian drone attacks has decreased by almost six times. A bit clunky. I mean, he could have said how many drones had hit him, but uh, a massive de- decrease there. Artillery bombardments are down. However, attacks by infantry and armoured vehicles carrying on as usual. I mean, I think it's a very s- a slow pace anyway, so usual. I don't think that's exceptionally busy. Now, the ISW, Institute for the Study of War, they're saying that Ukrainian forces have used these conditions to secure their positions on the left bank of the Dnipro River, the bridgehead there. I've been trying to find more information on that because I don't know what that would mean to secure their positions. It's an area of lots of islets, lots of little um, streams and rivers. So bar advancing or digging in and you can't dig in much before you hit water so i'm not entirely sure what they mean by secure their positions possibly they've used the um used the bad weather to try and get more supplies across to them but anyway i will try and dig into that further um because that choice of words is, is deliberate secure their position so i'll try and bottom that one out Next, uh, let's go slightly north uh, and into southern Ukraine. And suspected partisans have blown up Chechen fighters as they were driving near Melitopol. This happened over the weekend. Um, Ivan Fedorov, who's the city's exiled mayor, said a car was blown up, engulfed in flames. He didn't confirm the number of occupants killed, but saying they were from Chechnya. And next, so slightly east, let's go to Abdivka. Britain's MOD today saying that Russians, Russia's pincer movement there... As you know, for the last few last few weeks, they've been pushing to the south and southwest and around the the sort of northeast and the north. There's two big pincer movements there. They um, their advance there is one of Moscow's greatest gains since the spring. So uh, hang on, before we get the champagne out, wait, 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 they haven't finished. So in today's defence intelligence briefing, the MOD said Russian forces have advanced by up to two kilometres around the uh, industrial town in, in Donetsk since October. Now, they make the point, although modest, this advance likely represents one of the greatest Russian gains since spring this year and has come at the cost of thousands of casualties for the units involved. It, uh, it added, uh, this operation is gradually bringing Russian troops closer to the Avdivka coke and chemical plant, where Ukrainian forces maintain one of their main defensive positions. And although Avdivka has become a salient or a bulge in the Ukrainian front line, uh, Ukraine remains in control of a corridor of territory approximately seven kilometres wide through which it continues to supply the town. So not massive, seven kilometres on the, on the, in the grand scheme of things, but yeah, that's, that's big, enough, big enough for now, I think. Now into Russia. Let's move into Russia. And a Ukrainian drone uh, has struck a Russian aircraft factory more than 200 miles behind enemy lines. So Ukraine's military intelligence agency, the HUR, has claimed responsibility, which they don't 
often do, and certainly not this quickly, but claimed responsibility for the uh, explosion at the Smolensk Aviation Factory. So Smolensk is about halfway up Belarus's eastern border with Russia. Um, it's about 200 k's west-southwest of Moscow. Uh, footage of the blast show yeah, big explosion, plumes of black smoke billowing out of the plant, <clears throat> which also produces KH-59 cruise missiles as well as aviation um, bits and bobs. So Barza, a Russian telegram channel with links to the military, said two drones were downed over the factory, one of which crashed into the roof and exploded. It said there were no casualties. This is the second time Ukraine has hit that factory with drones. The previous raid in October was thought to have caused widespread damage to production lines. And we think that this attack, although footage has only just come out, we think this was part of the wave of around 35 drones Ukraine was said to have launched over the weekend at the same time as that dawn attack by 70 Russian Jahid drones on Saturday. We reported this yesterday. Staying in Russia, Putin has signed off a 70% increase in Russian military spending, which will take it to its highest level on record. Approximately 30% of government spending will go on the armed forces in 2024, a figure that rises to 40% when internal security is included, which, given the previous report, they, they need a bit more of. Now, the increase of nearly 70% from this financial year's budget, 23-24, has been going on through Russia's legislature for a number of months. I mean, it is a big increase. It will take some time for that to feed through. And, of course, we've got to then more sensible economic minds than I, maybe we should get Sue back on, to talk about the long-term economic impacts of ramping up your defence budget to uh, to that degree. And then just finally, a bit further south, back into Ukraine, Americans' Abram tanks have been seen um, in Ukraine. On Images circulated by Ukrainian sources show the M1A1 tanks, uh, the four-man crew posing on top of one of them. Pro-Kremlin sources suggest the tanks have been spotted in the Kupiansk area. That's in northeast Ukraine, about 75 k's southeast of Kharkiv, where Ukraine have been defending against a, a Russian push in, in recent months. Now, we've not been able to verify these claims. We can't geolocate the photograph, but uh, there is a, an image online of an American uh, M1. You'll remember that, that the US donated 31 tanks earlier this year. It was seen as the, as the, the move that then unlocked... Germany's decision to sign off on the export of Leopard 2 to Ukraine and those 31 started arriving in uh, in autumn this year. How much impact they'll have before winter really bites I, I don't know probably not a huge amount but the impact on morale I think would be will be significant. And incidentally David just before I finish the Kyiv Independent is reporting today that police Ukrainian police have finished the mandatory evacuation of children from Kupiansk where this tank allegedly was seen. The paper, the Kiev Independent, says 296 children were rescued from the area by police that, that, that's been constantly targeted by Russian attacks. The regional police said that in a put out on a statement yesterday. And I'll, I'll take a breather there, David. Well, thank you very much, Dom, for talking us through that. Francis Sternley, good to have you back. I think some of Dom's final stories there do dovetail a lot with what you've been looking at today. So take us through your thoughts. Yes, well, thanks, David. As listeners are well aware, we are at a delicate political moment in this war, both within Ukraine and among its allies. The front line across the country has become relatively static. And from Kyiv's perspective, there is a lack of real commitment from the West to Ukrainian battlefield success. 
As Francis Farrell writes in the Kiev Independent today, the main reason Ukraine finds itself in this position is because it wasn't given the weapons it needed to change the game before the war settled into this positional tussle. It's also increasingly clear that core Western allies, not least the United States, but also Germany, are anxious about what a complete Ukrainian victory would mean and thus are hesitant to provide the long-range weapons and other capabilities that could change the situation. Given this context, Zelensky has sent a delegation to meet Republican leaders in the US today amid the continuing deadlock in Congress over new funding for Ukraine. The New Voice newspaper said Oksana Makarova, Ukraine's ambassador to the US, will lead the delegation of MPs, officials, veterans and children affected by the Russian invasion. Many will be relieved that the administration is at last making overtures to the Republicans directly, as we have it on pretty good authority that they have been exceedingly reluctant to do so, perhaps for fear of upsetting Biden's team. Whilst NATO's Jens Stoltenberg said today he is confident the US will keep sending weapons to Ukraine because it is in the security interests of the United States to do so and is in line with what we agreed, the fact remains that many in the Trumpite wing of the Republicans remain sceptical, not least because Donald Trump himself is unwilling to vocalise support for Kyiv, something we've talked about many times. But just how unchangeable that position is amongst Republicans remains to be seen. That big question, can Trump be charmed? And will that have an impact on the Republican Party, or at least that wing of the Republican Party? But if we turn to Europe... Olaf Scholz has said today that supporting Ukraine in its defence against Russia is of existential importance to Europe and that his country will continue to provide as long as is necessary. Belen just sent Ukraine £259 million worth, well, that's about $328 million worth, to repair and modernise its energy grid, given Russia is, of course, expected to launch continued bombardments on Ukraine's infrastructure this winter, just as it did last year. And we know from the British MOD here that Moscow has been building up its cruise missile stockpiles to cause maximum damage in those strikes. Yet many will ask that if it is truly existential, why Germany and other European countries are unwilling to provide Kyiv with the weapons it is asking for, such as in Berlin's case, the Taurus missiles. The speculation is it's because they're afraid of what Kyiv might do with them, striking the bridges in Crimea or within Russia specifically, for instance. But to quote Dom, one cannot be half pregnant. If you really believe it is existential that Russia cannot be allowed to gain from this war, then it is not possible, given the strategic position, to continue giving Ukraine what it needs to hold on but not what it needs in order to succeed. As Marcus Walker writes in the Wall Street Journal, the US, European Union and UK have a combined annual economic output of about $45 trillion. That's 20 times the size of Russia's economy and superior technology. On paper, Ukraine's backers are much stronger than its attacker. But Russia is making far more effort. It is clear now that Moscow is waiting to see the outcome of the presidential election in the US. And given that context, it is surely essential for Europe to be ramping up its support. 
but it seems, as I say, reluctant to do so. Imagine how different the situation would be if every European country had mobilised its resources in the way Poland has, for instance. The EU countries are still so behind in getting ammunition to Ukraine is especially damaging at this moment. And this is leading to tensions within Ukraine itself. Some MPs are calling for an MP who criticised the Ukrainian army chief Zeluzhny to be expelled from Zelensky's party. So Marina Bizula, deputy head of the Ukrainian Parliament's National Security Committee, said on Sunday that Zeluzhny should step down for not providing a plan for next year's operations. But the secretary of the National Security Committee responded that Zeluzhny had not been asked to submit such a plan. Sources have told the Ukrainian press most lawmakers are outraged by Bizula's behaviour and propose excluding her. But we mustn't confuse this with the idea that Ukrainian resolve fundamentally is weakening. As Alec Russell wrote in a piece titled Ukraine's Long War and How to Win It in the Financial Times yesterday, Ukrainians are not in despair over global headlines shifting to the Middle East of late, nor are they talking about a deal with Moscow, as has been speculated. Instead, he argues there is an acceptance in Ukraine that wars take time. As he writes, so often in the post-Cold War era, the West has had to relearn this lesson. A few weeks into the Gulf War in 1991, the US-led coalition faced nervy questions about the risk of becoming bogged down. The syndrome reappeared early in the Kosovo War, eight years later. But the Ukrainians know all about long wars. Their war did not start on February 24th, 2022, as it did in the minds of so many outside Ukraine. It started in 2014 when Russia annexed Crimea. So the idea that the dominance of Gaza on Western TV has discombobulated Ukrainians misses the point. They seem genuinely perplexed when asked about this. In my scores of exchanges from Kiev to Kharkiv, the crisis in the Middle East did not feature once. In every fateful war, there are, have been many moments of defeatism. For all the gloom, the geopolitical landscape may be shifting. The West did not argue its case well to the global south last year. But Beijing is signalling that fostering an axis of autocracies does not trump their need to keep its economy on track. India cites history rather than interests to defend a non-aligned stance. Ukraine's allies have been too slow to ramp up procurements, but it is not too late and is ultimately affordable. Kiev just needs our help and for us to keep the faith. I repeat, wars take time. A timely piece, David, by Alec Russell there in the Financial Times and one that I do recommend to listeners. But that's where we are. Thank you very much, Dom and Francis. Well, before we go to our guest, Sasha, Joe Barnes, let's come to you. What stories have you been looking at? Yep. So uh, live from NATO HQ, where NATO foreign ministers are meeting at the moment, but more on that later, maybe. So first, we have the curious tale of the wife of Ukraine's chief military spymaster has been hospitalised after she was poisoned in what looks like an assassination attempt. So Marina uh, Marina yeah, Budinova, who is married to Major General Kirillo Budinov, the influential head of Ukraine's military intelligence agency, was poisoned with, and I quote, heavy metals, intelligence sources have said this morning. So Mrs. Budinova, 30, was hospitalised after a prolonged deterioration in her health, according to local media reports, which have since been verified by Ukrainian intelligence sources. The substance, some substances sorry, used to target the 30-year-old were, and I quote again, in no way used in everyday life and military affairs, according to one source. They pres- 
Their presence may indicate a deliberate attempt to poison a particular person. The source added, and this was first reported by the Ukrainian news outlet Babel and has since been picked up by various other outlets uh, in Ukraine that are looking at this story. So it looks like Ms. Budinova is on the mend. So sources say that the treatment is now complete and they are awaiting checkups from a doctor. But it doesn't seem to be an isolated incident. So a number of military intelligence officials in Ukraine have apparently fallen ill with similar symptoms associated with potentially heavy metal poisonings. We don't actually know what that is, but it's something heavy metals is or, or metal poisoning is something that has been used previously. If you remember back to the early peace negotiations that Roma Abramovich was apparently involved in and a few people left that feeling sick. But I must stress, these are still just reports. So while they're um, apparently confirmed by sources, the Ukraine's military intelligence agency has not official uh, issued official statements on this. But what we can say is numerous attempts have been made on Major General Budinov's life before and after the launch of Vladimir Putin's full-scale invasion. The conflict has transformed this once sort of relatively unknown general into sort of one of Moscow's most revered and high-profile targets of the war. His agency have uh, organised multiple hits on pro-Kremlin propagandists, their deep strikes within Russia, and lots of sort of the, the war-fighting intelligence operations going on are to do with him. So what's quite interesting is we know that from an interview with Radio Liberty some time ago that Budinov and his wife were living together in his office, and that had been the case since the outbreak of the war, mainly for security reasons. Um, the little bit on the background of Mrs Budinova, she's a trained psychologist but has most recently been working as an advisor to the Kiev mayor Vitaly Klitschko the former heavyweight champion boxer and before that she volunteered at Ukraine's main military hospital in Kiev between 2015 and 2017 so I think that's a developing story we're going to have more on that later on the Telegraph website we've got an early version of it up but I will be adding to that as the day goes on so keep an eye out for that something that I wrote about over the weekend is um, and say Francis alluded to it was the artillery problems that Ukraine is facing and sort of as weather worsens and the front lines are frozen in place Ukraine is struggling to secure enough artillery shells which it can use to change the equation to sort of move those front lines so President Vladimir Zelensky has warned that key shipments of 155 millimeter munitions have dropped off after fighting erupted between Israel and Hamas so both Ukraine and Russia have struggled to maintain stockpiles of shells after sort of two, almost two years of long-range duels across vast battlefields. Um, but what has changed in this in recent times is Moscow has received about one million shells from its ally, North Korea, and that was across 10 different shipments since August, and that's according to South Korean intelligence services. And this has helped Russia essentially launch and sustain a recent new offensive, which is sort of aimed at Avdivka, at Kupiansk, at various places along the front line, which has enabled Russia to use this artillery to try and bundle itself forward in very quick fashion. But at the same time, the European Union has basically said it was going to try and act as Kiev's main supplier of, of artillery shells, promising to deliver uh, one million shells by March next year. But now the EU, as we've reported before, has conceded it's not going to hit that target. So the bloc has delivered around 300,000 shells, and they're mainly for national stockpiles. But what countries in the EU have struggled to do is find new sources of shells. So 
new manufacturing plants that can churn out shells at a quicker rate, new production lines that have been opened. They've basically promised the world and tried to do this, but they've seemingly failed, which is not great news for Ukraine. But there are some sort of there are some sort of good positives out of this. So the release of the Depikum, that's the cluster munition by the US, that eased some of Ukraine's problems because there are significant stockpiles of those floating around the world and the US doesn't use them anymore and because of various international sort of agreements and, and promises that they're not actually cluster munitions that aren't used by many Western governments anymore. So they're available. And so some people have come forward. So um, Kiev recently received a promise of more 155 millimeter shells from Germany. The US is actually ramping, ramping up production, but it has actually had its resources slightly drained because a lot of the shells that have gone from the US to Ukraine were actually from stockpiles that were destined for use in the Middle East. And Israel has had some sort of, some sort of not hand on it. It's, uh, what would I say? They've had some, they've had some claim to the shells and the US is obviously trying to help out all of its allies. But so the US plans to up, up its production rate of 155 millimeter shells to 100,000 a month, but it's not going to hit that target until 2025. So the, the problem is that actually the slow pace of which allies of Ukraine are boosting artillery production means Ukraine is unlikely to be able to tip the balance on the battlefield. Experts say it will likely be able to cling on though, which is good news. So uh, Justin Crump, a friend of the Telegraph, um, military British military veteran, and also uh, he runs a strategic and risk analysis sort of company. He said Ukraine could certainly use more shells, but for now both sides have sufficient supplies to maintain the fight, but rarely to move the front line under the current conditions. But what he did tell me was, and that's actually good news for Ukraine, is the fact that the lack of shells has meant that Ukraine's Western partners have looked to supply Ukraine with better equipment. So looking at the the storm shadows and the uh, ATACAMs that, that have seriously helped Ukraine overcome Russia's advantage in long-range munitions uh, by giving them really good precision strike capabilities. Um, so, And what is good is Ukraine have used tactics as well to try and eat into the Kremlin's artillery advantage. They've gradually eroded Russia's artillery advantage in the 20 months of fighting, um, with Russia apparently losing about 600 artillery guns and launchers. And at the moment, Moscow is believed to be losing four times more artillery systems than Kyiv on the main axes of the southern counteroffensive. But without shells, Ukraine will not be able to advance, given the sort of tactics, more positional jostling, positional conflict rather than full-scale manoeuvre. But if those shells also dry up, it will stop Ukraine from holding back Russian advances. So it's, it's key and important that they get some to Ukraine. And yeah, any questions? Well, thank you so much, Joe, for that deep dive. That was fascinating. Tell us a little bit about this NATO meeting um, you're at. Um, what will you be looking at? And will you um, come on tomorrow and tell us what, you, what you've seen and heard? Yeah, I'll definitely come on tomorrow because tomorrow is the Ukraine day. So it's a meeting of foreign ministers um, of NATO countries, NATO allies. Um, so yet there's obviously a lot to focus on Ukraine and tomorrow is the Ukraine day. So I'll come back on tomorrow. But here's some sort of early what we're looking at. I'll touch on a little bit later because in my final thoughts, but for now, David Cameron has issued a statement. He's our new foreign secretary. He said, NATO keeps over 1 billion people safe and secure and nearly 75 years on, the alliance is stronger than ever. Putin first believed that NATO would be divided and that Ukraine would crumble. Now he believes he can wait out his war in Ukraine. 
He was wrong then and he is wrong now. Together, the UK and our NATO allies will never turn a blind eye to Russian aggression. The UK will continue to be a steadfast supporter of Ukraine and a champion for European peace and stability. So it's a bit of sort of diplomatic language that's pretty boring. But what David Cameron claims he's doing is trying to galvanise support and try and keep NATO allies, the West, behind Ukraine at a difficult time. There's going to be a few conversations on sort of how can we boost artillery output and production who is going to be donating uh supplies so that's another another one but then yeah there's various other things but i'll come and i'll come and speak on that in more detail tomorrow and then yet one last story that you want to touch on david is slovak truckers have threatened to block the country's main border crossing with ukraine from friday unless measures are taken to limit competition from ukrainian hauliers the UNAS Truckers Association said it would shut the crossing, and excuse my pronunciation, Vesny Nemec, the only one which is open to heavy trucks. UNAS is awaiting a response to the, the threat from the Slovak Transport Ministry and will make its decision final on Thursday. So looking out for that this week. And that comes after Polish truckers and farmers have been blockading its land crossings with Ukraine, basically over concerns that Ukrainian truckers are not just delivering supplies between Ukraine and the EU. They're actually now carrying out business while they're under a period where they're basically let off the hook for various certificates and stuff they need in order to um, to operate in the EU. So it's a sort of a, another one of these business tensions that are running between European businesses, European individuals and Ukraine as the war goes on. And I'll stop there. Well, thank you very much, Joe, for all of that. Thank you, Francis and Dom. Dr. Sasha Dovshik, thank you so much for joining us. Could you just tell us, uh, well, we've been on the podcast many times before, but just for any listeners who um, would like reminding, can you tell us a bit about yourself, where you are right now, where are you speaking from? And then, of course, tell us about this new project you've launched. Hi, David. Hi, uh, Francis, Joe, Dom. It's always a great privilege to speak to you. I'm a special projects curator at the Ukrainian Institute London and the editor of the London Ukrainian Review. But currently and for the foreseeable future, I'm based in Lviv, Western Ukraine, where I'm involved in a number of cultural projects and initiatives, about which I will tell you in a bit. It's a snowy day in Lviv and uh, I'm currently looking at this very wintry weather from a very cozy and warm flat in the center of the city. I can't but think about people who are currently in the east and the south of the country who are on the front lines and fighting in this third winter of our full-scale resistance to Russia's invasion. And just to reiterate on some of the things that Francis has mentioned, it's unbelievable that I am able to be so cozy and to feel so little of the effects of the war in Western Ukraine, where I currently am, which is largely due to the Western support and to the fact that our allies keep the country's economy afloat. But on the other hand, as I've mentioned, it's the third winter of the full-scale invasion, and the fact that we haven't managed to actually defeat Russia due to the lack of arms supply from the West is also very telling. So mixed feelings here. Yeah, and regarding the projects I'm currently involved in, the latest one is called uh, People of Culture Taken Away by the War. So uh, it basically 
does what it says in the tin. <laughs> it documents the losses of Ukrainian cultural practitioners who have been murdered since the full-scale invasion. And this is the project that is run by Pen Ukraine, a literary and human rights association, uh, which unites uh, authors, writers, journalists, uh, cultural practitioners, intellectuals, and the Ukrainians media, which is a fantastic journalistic uh, pro uh, platform based in Ukraine. And I recommend following all their projects. Uh, so this is our attempt to commemorate the lives and the work of Ukrainians who have made up basically the fabric of our culture, translators, documentary filmmakers, theater makers, writers, artists, both civilians and those who volunteered to fight and whose lives have been cut short by Russia, either in missile strikes or as they were defending our country at the front lines. This project was initiated by Tetyana Teren, who is the executive director of PEN Ukraine. And like so many other ideas, initiatives, endeavors in our lives, it was um, prompted by the death uh, and our love, our gratitude, our memory of Victoria Melina, Ukrainian writer, uh, who turned into a war crimes researcher and whom I know you also knew well. Um, she was murdered in a missile strike on Kramatorsk this summer in June. She was there to um, accompany a delegation of Colombian writers to uh, show them the consequences of the Russian full-scale invasion. And as a war crimes investigator, it's a great tragedy that she actually became one of the victims of one of Russia's war crimes, the firing of a high-precision missile at a peaceful, not peaceful, it's actually a frontline city, but obviously many civilians, 13 civilians were murdered there in that missile strike. To do justice to Victoria's life, to Victoria's work, I wrote an obituary, and Tetiana thought that we must continue doing this work, spreading the word about these people who meant so, so much for us personally and who, may, who meant so much for the Ukrainian culture in general, um, that we must build this makeshift monument for them, at least with words, and in such a way to make their memory last and make their legacy known inside Ukraine and internationally. By doing this, I believe that in a way we continue their life's work. In a way, their message continues circulating globally. And maybe in such a way, we're also resisting the cultural genocide or culture side that has been promised to us by Russia. Sasha, you very movingly write, as I'm quoting from you here, in her preface for Volodymyr Vakulenko's Diary of Occupation, Vika, that's Victoria, seems to have left us, if not clear instructions, then a direction of travel. And you quote her, Volodymyr Vakulenko wrote the diary, hoping that you would read it. Therefore, if you are holding this book in your hands, the writer, Volodymyr Vakulenko, has won. 
What do these words mean for you? And what do you think this direction of travel is for you in this project? Yes, thank you for this quote. Well, actually, Victoria was uh, preoccupied with the, what we call in Ukraine the executed renaissance. It's the generation of Ukrainian writers, artists who were murdered by the Soviet regime in the 1930s. She researched their lives, she researched their work, and she was afraid that she would leave to see another executed renaissance, especially when it became known that the invading Russian troops had lists of Ukrainian intellectuals and cultural practitioners to be executed. For Victoria, it meant that most of her social circle would actually die by the hands of Russia's murderers. And, of course, tragically, she became one of those whom the Russian invasion did not spare. For her, researching their legacy meant continuing to deliver their message to the next generations. It meant that their words continue their lives and they still have impact on our culture and on our social life in Ukraine and beyond. And of course, she was the one who uh, unearthed the occupation diary of the Ukrainian children's author Volodymyr Vakulenko, whom Russians tortured and killed when they occupied the Kharkiv region in March 2022. So Vakulenko managed to first write some notes about the beginning of the occupation of his native village Kapitolivka. And then when he understood that he did not have much time left, he buried his diary under a cherry tree uh, near his family home in the village. When the Ukrainian troops deoccupied Kapitolivka in autumn 2022, Victoria was among those war crimes researchers who rushed into the region to document Russia's atrocities. And actually, the destiny of Volodymyr Vakulenko was um, on the top of her list of urgent matters. It's clearly, it became clear quite soon that she did not survive. And she was searching the garden of their family home with Volodymyr's father and eventually she managed to undig, to dig out the diary of Volodymyr Vakulenko. And for her, it meant a huge relief. It meant that the message that he sent to the world actually reached the readers. It reached us. And it meant that his will, in a way, became accomplished. Um, and for us, it means that whatever Victoria started... Uh, needs to be finished by us. We, we just must continue doing their work. We must continue circulating their message. And we must make sure that their names are remembered. Listeners of this podcast will remember two interviews we did with Victoria. One uh, last year on the anniversary of Maidan, where she spoke about her experiences uh, in 2014. And the second one was earlier this year, I believe in April, uh, where she spoke about the Ukrainian literary scene. And she was in London, so came into the office to speak to us then. Um, we knew her as an incredibly intelligent interviewee who was kind enough with her time to explain and to describe and to talk us through what she was thinking. What did she mean for you as a friend and as a writer? 
I, well, was lucky and unlucky because we only met in person in April 2023, so half a year ago, when we went on a volunteer's trip to the Donetsk region. But as many people knew Victoria online through her very witty tweets and through her incredibly sharp writing in English, she was so fluent and so eloquent in English. And then we met in person and I was just blown away by her humor, her irony, her very humble bearing. She didn't think much of her poetry or of her position in Ukrainian cultural life. So she was quite humble. And it felt like we would have years of friendship and we would have time to develop this friendship and become close. And I know that this gift of friendship is something that everyone who knew her keeps mentioning that she made friends for life easily um, because of some kind of generosity of her spirit. But yeah, I, as everyone in our circle, I was devastated when the news of the Kramatorsk strike came in June and I understood that uh, Victoria was one of the victims. But like, like with everything that she did, this her death in a way meant that while we were devastated, I'll put it like that, we also understood that we just could not stop, that we would that we should continue our work. And in this way, our memory of her and our gratitude to what she did and to who she was, uh, means that we continue doing whatever we can to spread the word about her and about other Ukrainian cultural practitioners like her who were murdered by Russia since the beginning of the full-scale invasion. Um, And of course, by doing this, we do not only commemorate their memory, we also testify of Russia's genocidal intent because by removing these cultural figures, Russia makes sure that Ukrainian culture is silenced, that Ukrainian culture goes through another executed renaissance. And by spreading the knowledge of who these people were, of what they worked on, we are resisting in our way. Well, in that spirit, Sasha, would you introduce us to some of the other people you document in your project? Who should listeners go and read about? Oh, with pleasure. Um, it's probably tragic, again, to speak of another victim of, um, of an attack on a civilian city, Olha Kolorovo. Uh, Kolorovo is her pseudonym, and her surname is Pavlenko. Olha Pavlenko Kolorovo was uh, a Ukrainian artist and food writer who was killed just a year to the day uh, before Victoria Amelina in Kremenchuk in central Ukraine when Russians fired a rocket on a shopping mall there. Olha Pavlenko Kolorovo researched Ukrainian food culture and she gathered these authentic traditional Ukrainian recipes in a beautiful book called The Book of Living Ukrainian Cuisine, 
which contains her illustrations, her witty stories about her travels across Ukraine, her glimpses into the history of Ukrainian food culture. And I believe that everyone who comes to Ukraine becomes a foodie because it's impossible not to fall in love with Ukrainian cooking. And I hope that they will also discover this book by Ola Kolorovo and fall in love with her as well as I did when I wrote her story. Um, another absolutely fantastic person I was privileged to write about was Vyacheslav Zaitsev, Slava Zaitsev, from my native Zaporizhia. Um, he was a historian, an archaeologist, but also a person with military experience. So he volunteered to defend Ukraine back in 2014 when Russia first invaded eastern Ukraine. And he was one of those cyborgs who defended the airport of Donetsk in 2014. He was twice injured, returned back to his native Zaporizhia, where he was one of these people who keep things running at the Museum of the History of Cossacks. And when Russia invaded again, he, of course, returned to the front line. His call sign was Hortitsa after the island in the center of Zaporizhia, which I know very well and love dearly. Many of my friends, many of my relatives even, uh, work on this island to preserve the history of Ukrainian Cossackdom. And everyone mentioned uh, Slava with such love, such gratitude. It was really moving to write about him. But obviously, I encourage you to read about all the cultural figures on the list. Thank you so much, Sasha, for being with us today and sharing all of that. Dom, Francis and Joe, do you have any questions before we move to our final thoughts? I'd love to ask Sasha a question, if I may, David. Sasha, always a pleasure to hear from you and hear your reflections on these matters. I was very kindly invited to speak about Ukraine to a delegation of British Poles yesterday. And some of these themes came up in the Polish context, of course, another country that suffered for a very, very long period of time under the Russian heel, as it were. I just wanted to, speaking on this question of Ukrainian literature and culture, in your view, and I know this is a very broad question, what does Ukrainian literature offer the world in terms of core themes and lessons in the way that, say, British culture can or Polish culture can? Just interested in what you think are those specific themes, areas, unique cultural aspects that Ukraine can shine a light on that perhaps other countries are not quite generalizing here, but not quite as effective at, perhaps. Thank you so much for this question. Well, I think that one of the things that are unique for Ukrainian culture uh, is this idea of vola, which uh, combines in a way will and freedom, so will for freedom, as a country which has been subjugated by various empires for so long. Uh, Ukrainians have developed uh, this streak of literature that speaks of volia, speaks of will to freedom of the Ukrainian people very eloquently from the father of Ukrainian literature, Taras Shevchenko, and into the execu executed renaissance of the 20th century and to our days. This idea of freedom is permanent and persevering in Ukrainian literature. 
And another aspect is probably uh, less talked about. I was lucky, fortunate actually, to teach Ukrainian literature at the uh, University College London for a year. And I was guided by William Blacker, whose uh, <laughs> main shtick is that he teaches literatures of Ukraine, so literatures of the many nations, ethnicities, peoples that inhabited the territory of Ukraine from the perspective of their overlap, of their mutual influence. And in this way, Ukraine, the literatures of Ukraine, open a very interesting perspective on the development of the Crimean Tatars, Poles, Germans, Jews, everyone who inhabited this territory for centuries. So it would be interesting also to flip what we understand under Ukrainian literature and instead to look at the literatures uh, that developed on this territory. And it offers us a unique perspective, not only on Ukraine, but also on the development of people with whom we've been involved in various kinds of relationships for many years. Sasha, hi, it's Dom here. Thanks so much for uh, for joining us today. A quickie for me. Coming from the position of somebody who, when I when I joined the army, I went through the um, all the selection stuff for the army and all the mental aptitude and essays and all that kind of bobbins, I was described as a cultural desert. I'm hanging on to your ankles here, if I may. But tell me why I should visit Lviv. Tell me about your city and, and what I would see if I had a, a nice long weekend and wanted to, uh, to come and see Lviv. Where would you tell me to... Uh, go and have a look at. <laughs> Thank you. So first, you should make sure you're well fed. Anywhere you go, you again will experience the wonders of Ukrainian cuisine, which surprises everyone. People who have not been in the country since the full-scale invasion think that we eat salo, which is lad, ladder uh, by candlelight, but actually the Ukrainian restaurants are booming and continue to inspire and to surprise. I would also encourage you to visit bookshops because Ukrainian independent bookshops have been absolutely thriving through the recent years. Particularly, it is inspired by the fact that Ukrainians now that they are facing this existential threat, want to learn more about their culture, their history, their literature, and numerous anthologies of Ukrainian classic poetry, Ukrainian classic literature, and Ukrainian contemporary literature have been published this year or were published last year. So you would just be uh, surprised by the abundance of what Ukrainian bookshops can offer. And obviously there are various readings, poetry readings, uh, concerts, book clubs that gather like crowds I've not seen in London or Vienna or Warsaw for that matter. Because everyone here is uh, very much looking for meaning and sometimes literature is actually the place we turn to when we are looking for meaning. So that would be my very general advice, <laughs> uh, food and books. Well, thank you so much, Sasha, for your time today. Thank you, Dom, Francis and Joe as well. Let's move to our final thoughts. Sasha, you've been speaking for a while, so we'll come to you last to let you catch your breath. Dom or Francis, would you like to go first? 
Yeah, sure. So I said earlier on, we were talking about the Russian mill blogger, talking about these, the storm, the big storm down south. And the mill blogger was saying that naval minefields fear to be drifting after storm. the storm broke boom nets, keeping the mines in place. I said yesterday that military commanders will seek to exploit well, in anything they can. They'll certainly seek to exploit this terrible weather that's going on across southern Ukraine and Russia in the last few days. So we reported that before the storm yesterday and this morning. I just wonder if this comment by Mill Blogger is a prelude to strikes on the increasingly effective Ukrainian effort to get grain out of the country. So I wouldn't be surprised if in the coming days a civilian, or weeks probably, uh, a civilian merchant vessel accidentally hits one of these mines that are broken free. And I highlight this as an example of how I receive and, and think about News. Now, I'm not saying this story has been planted. I'm not saying it's not true. I mean, it, it, it's reasonable if the place has been smashed up, that mines might float three, free. But I, um, as was advised by my mum, question everything, but only if you're prepared to hear the answer. So I question every bit of information that I get. And a, and a Russian mill blogger saying, oh, there might be mines drifting away. I'm just saying, how do they, how do they know the mines are drifting? And if, if in future weeks we do see a merchant vessel that, that is hit... I don't. We shouldn't say, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, there was that guy talking about how these mines have, uh, have all floated free. I just think we shouldn't allow that framework to be how we receive news. We should just question this all the time. And it might be true in the future, in which case there'll hopefully be some verification mechanism. But don't automatically in the future think, oh, yeah, we, we were expecting that because I wouldn't put it past the Russians to use this as, a, as an opportunity to try and stymie the, as I say, ever more increasing and effective way that Ukraine is getting grain out of the country. Thanks, David. Thanks, Tom. Francis Turnley. Thanks, David. Well, we've talked a lot about the importance of reportage today. And I just know many listeners like us are closely following the case of Wall Street Journal journalist Evan Vygoskovich, who has now been detained for eight months on charges of espionage that carry up to 20 years in prison, accusations he and the Wall Street Journal strongly deny. Well, today, a Russian court has extended the pre-trial detention period of a Mr. Vygoskovich by two months, meaning he will now remain in custody until at least January 30th, 2024. The Wall Street Journal has issued the following statement. Evan has now been unjustly imprisoned for nearly 250 days and every day is a day too long. The accusations against him are categorically false and his continued imprisonment is a brazen and outrageous attack on a free press, which is critical for a free society. We continue to stand with Evan and call for his immediate release. Suffice to say, David, voices like Evans remain vital for us to get an accurate understanding of what is happening in Russia. And it's important we don't lose sight of journalists like him and all of the dangers that such individuals experience who are operating there. Thank you to all of those who are listening in Russia who report on the war for you, what you do to keep us all informed. Thank you, Dom. Francis, Joe Barnes. Yeah, to finish off, and well, first of all, thank you for Sasha for joining us. Great stuff as always, and say incredibly sad to hear the stories again and again. It doesn't get easier any time. Um, but yeah, I just want to talk about a story that appeared on Friday last week, and it is um, by the German tabloid newspaper Bild, who suggested Germany and the US will be putting pressure on Ukraine to negotiate with Russia by scaling back weapons deliveries. Um, and what the report said was and essentially suggested that unless there's a sort of a full military defeat but even then you have some sort of negotiation but what this apparent secret plan build reported comes out um is 
possibly not as clear cut as as was first reported. So I've, I've been speaking to people associated with NATO, etc., ahead of this summit, and what they've been saying is one person told me, "Look, that is BS in on diplomatic talk." And basically said, look, from what we heard from the Americans and the Germans at a recent meeting of the Ramstein format, which is the uh, UK Ukraine contact group, it's 50-odd Ukrainian of Ukraine's Western allies donating weapons. They said the Germans and the Americans are still resolute in their support and they see that carrying on. Another source suggested to me that potentially this was language by the Germans, by the US, essentially to scale back on creating an overhyped scenario like we experienced at the last counteroffensive when everyone was thinking it was going to sweep through Russia's defences and break the lines and they'd be in Crimea and Ukraine would be in Crimea in a fortnight. That didn't quite happen. So now potentially people are trying to domestically hold back on their language purely just not to offer the Ukrainians sort of too much hope and but also to sort of so not to give away too many plans. What's the next phase going to be? Let's not all suggest that we're arming Ukraine for another offensive because Russia clearly knew what was coming and had plenty of time to defend against it. So I'm just adding some context to that story and I'll, I'll stop there for now. And thanks for listening, folks. Thank you very much, Dom, Francis and Joe. Sasha, would you like the very final words? Thank you. Well, I just want to emphasize that despite all the quite depressing news of um, Ukrainian uh, stalemate, as it's uh, now known. We are still here. (laughs) We can't accept the attitude that the failure to deliver the weapons that would serve Ukrainian victory sooner rather than later means that we have already lost. We have not lost. We are still fighting. I know that one of my friends who is currently in Avdivka is listening right now to this podcast. Hello, Jan. So for the sake of all my friends who are defending me with weapons right now, and for the sake of all Ukrainians, I just want to emphasize that there is no point in time when we are free to lay down our weapons and to say that we failed Ukraine. This point has not come and this point will never come because Ukrainians are not ready to surrender. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, 
We are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.